Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Are you enjoying the Single Tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated Single Tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos, and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly, annual, or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad free browsing on the website, free Single Tracks stickers in the mail, and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com slash support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com slash support. Thank you and happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is John Caravu. John is the head of marketing for Moots, the Steamboat Springs, Colorado-based bike brand known for hand-building premium titanium bikes. John is a passionate rider and racer and has been with the brand for 24 years, starting in the shop when Moots had less than half a dozen employees. Thanks for joining us, John. Yeah, Jeff, uh, pleasure to be here. Um, always, always nice to chat with folks, for sure. Yeah. Well, how did you end up living in Steamboat Springs, Colorado and working for Moots? Seems like neither of those really is going to like happen by accident. You probably had to work at that. Yeah, it, definitely a twist of life events, I guess. Um, uh, back in those days, I had uh, finished up uh, college and, and was destined to work in the golf course industry, of all things. I uh, have a horticulture degree from Oklahoma State University, and uh, I moved here um, after uh, working my college years in a bike shop to... Uh, kind of fuel my passion and uh, pay the bills here and there. And uh, I had a very good friend uh, moved to Steamboat initially as a mechanic. And uh, he's, you know, I was kind of at a crossroads of my life. And uh, he said, you ought to come up here and check it out. And so I drove uh, my 1985 Toyota Land Cruiser and my yellow lab dog and anything that I owned at the time, uh, I drove to Steamboat and showed up at his door. And he looked at me and he said, well, I didn't know you were going to move here. I thought you were just visiting. <laughs> yeah. What time of year was this? Was this winter or summer? Because I feel like for me, summer would like suck me in. But then if I, if I went in winter, I'd be like, okay, it's all right. But Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, early summer, June. And I, I did drive over Rabbit Ears Pass that year. And the valley and the mountains had had like record snowfall, and there were still twelve foot snowbanks on Rabbit Ears Pass. Whoa! And uh, that was definitely uh, the start of they call it the steamboat curse, where just like you said, the the summers uh, suck you in, mm -hmm. and then you endure the winter if you're not a a big wintertime sports fan or activities fan. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that's it. I, I, I came into town. Um, I went to work for uh, a golf course in the area and spent a summer doing that. 
and then kind of quickly uh, changed course and found my way back to bicycles. I was a uh, uh, trained uh, bike mechanic through Barnett Bicycle Institute in Colorado Springs. And uh, my instructor there was none other than uh, Calvin Jones, who runs uh, Park Tool Development these days. And uh, that really got me into the, the super technical side of, of the bike world, for sure. Yeah, cool. So over the years, Moots has come out with a number of mountain bike innovations, starting in 1987 with the YBB Softtail suspension design. Uh, you were there from very early stages. Maybe maybe you were there when it first came out. Tell us how that design sort of came about. Yeah, I mean, uh, after uh, working for the, the bike shop called Sore Saddle Cyclery, um, which was the home base of Moot Cycles at the time, the, the frames were literally being made in the back of the bike shop. Mm. And that was about 1994. And soon after that, I, I did go to work for Moots after, you know, getting to know Kent Erickson, the founder. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they were widely known for the YBB. And at that time, it, it had made the change to titanium. But kind of that first bike in 87, it was, it was made out of steel. Um, that was our material of choice for the first 10 years of Moots' existence. And, and that was the material of the times, right? Mm-hmm. Titanium was kind of this wonder material that nobody had a grasp on in a big way. And when Kent built that first YBB in 87, it was, it was built, built out of prestige steel tubing. Mm. And the kind of the spark that really got that going was this ancient bike Kent had come across in a photo album and then in person. It was literally from the early 1900s. It was uh, somewhat of a pivoted design, but a similar format. There was a pivot around the bottom bracket shell mm -hmm. and then this little tiny you know, shock behind the seat tube. Huh. And that was kind of Kent's, you know, that was his inspiration. And building it out of prestige tubing was a great first step. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, you know, the fatigue resistance of steel um, showed its its face uh, basically, and eventually those those bikes would crack. Huh. If you've ever sat and flexed a kind of a paper clip back and forth uh, a number of times, it will eventually uh, fail. And similar to a chainstay on a bike, uh, especially when made out of steel. So that was uh, a great start to the YBB. And right right at 1991. The uh, access to titanium, literature on titanium, the properties of it started to become a little more accessible. And one of the welders at Moots at the time, uh, I believe there was one welder, and uh, he said, you know, we should really look at this material. The, the fatigue resistance and the properties of this material really could be the saving grace of this design. And... Uh, that was it. Um, in 1991, the first titanium YBB was made, and almost overnight, the steel tubing that uh, Moots had in stock at the time was sold, and from that point forward, it was titanium. Huh, interesting. And I guess, so titanium, is, it's not going to fatigue the same way that the steel will. That's something unique to titanium, where it won't 
it won't break or, or will it just take longer to sort of snap if you bend it back and forth? It, it depends on how much you're flexing it. It, it will eventually uh, reach a point of fatigue and, and fail, but that fatigue life is longer than almost any material that's out there. Since then, have developed the YBB in a couple of different platforms over the years. And we've had our bikes sent off for testing. And, you know, I, I recall, you know, once, you know, early 2000, it was kind of time to send off another frame because we did that periodically and still do. And we had it fatigue tested. And the uh, outfit that was testing it, you know, put it on the machine, let it run. It surpassed a ton of industry standards by miles and then broke the guy's machine. <laughs> wow. So that was, that was kind of satisfying of like, wow, man, this is, we've really come onto something and uh, the durability and the fatigue resistance is just, there's nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Moots obviously is known for titanium nowadays. And like you said, it wasn't initially kind of the material of choice, mostly because it wasn't really available. Um, but speaking of these, you know, sort of flexible chainstays, we're starting to see that in carbon as well from some of the latest bikes. Do you think, do you think that's something that, uh, I don't know, is, is interesting <laughs> at least, or, or is that something that maybe has some drawbacks that titanium does not? You know, I think uh, for Moots, you know, the the years that we've built in titanium, we really have got to know the material extremely well. I mean, now we're we're celebrating 40 years, which means we've been building in titanium for 30. And it's interesting uh, to see the new the new carbon layups and what they're able to do to address flex and forgiveness in certain parts of the frame. For us. It still comes down to titanium is our material, and if it were any other material, we would be somewhat faking it. Like we we don't, you know, we know carbon. We've we've uh, investigated and and we've looked at it. But to us, it comes down to, you know, here we are building this beautiful titanium frame out, you know, mountain bike frame, uh, road frame, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And we spend all this energy to put into it. And then you take a, a glue joint um, or something of that nature that that's carbon. And the drawback to us is incorporating that into our bike frame. And like, that's, that's not going to be super dependable for our purposes. Mm-hmm. So we kind of steer clear of it. And I remember uh, early early times of carbon fiber seat stay kits that were getting incorporated into aluminum, titanium uh, frames, you know, mainly on the roadside. And we looked at that and we decided at that point, this, this isn't for us. This is, this is taking what we know can be a very durable product and making somewhat of a sacrifice by gluing a joint into it. Um, so we, we, we steered, steered away from that, but yeah, it's incredible to see there's some really cool soft tail renditions out there that are in carbon and, uh, very interesting things, things that those folks are doing with that. Yeah. Well, I think most riders who've been around for a while and have shopped for mountain bikes kind of understand the advantages of titanium as a frame building material, but could you 
just outline real quick, like what are kind of the, the top level, the biggest advantages of titanium over perhaps other materials? Yeah, you know, it's for us, it comes down, you know, there's a lot of energy used to go into building bike frames, no matter the material. And titanium is no exception. It's very finicky to work with huge amount of energy. So what we find that is our number one, you know, leader in that, that area is durability and ride quality. So since we are expending that amount of energy, um, to build out a frame, um, we feel that using the right material makes that use of energy all, all that much worth it. Basically, it's going to outlast anything else. And so we can find, kind of find a, a, a nugget and a shining star in that of, yeah, it took a lot of energy, but it's going to outlast anything that's out there. Yeah, and to be clear, the energy that we're talking about, I mean, if you look at like aluminum versus titanium versus steel, the energy in terms of like mining it and extracting it and purifying it and forming it and all of that, that sort of thing, um, titanium does, from my understanding, has requires more energy kind of to get it to that point of, you know, being a tube that you can use then to, to build a bike. Yeah, exactly. And that's that, that accumulative energy use is it's always in our mind. And, and the, the beautiful thing about titanium, when you get the, the frame finished, uh, it doesn't require paint. And so for us, you know, it's, it's an easily, easily painted material, but for us, it's just, you know, it's one of those things that um, you can abuse it. You can you know, load it on the back of your car, put it in the back of the truck, go wherever, ride, not worry about the paint job. And not using paint and all those chemicals is, is very uh, concerning for us, mm -hmm. for the environment, yeah. right? You've got to do something with the chemicals afterwards. So that was another big part of the move to titanium was, of course, the steel bikes needed to be painted. Um, they'll rust and fatigue. And so that was another uh, positive for moving, moving to titanium for us. Interesting. Uh, what about disadvantages? I mean, cost is probably the, the first one that most people run into. Obviously, a titanium bike is going to cost more than aluminum, right? Yeah, for sure. There's, there's definitely a, an initial cost uh, barrier to titanium. And, uh, you know, we choose to... Um, source the best material we can find. And um, most of that, by and large, ends up being U.S. manufactured tubing from the, from the aerospace uh, mills, basically. And for us, you know, it kind of comes down to our ethos of, you know, find, find and use the best material possible. When we get it here at the facility, we apply a cumulative 30 years of knowledge to work with it. Um, and in the end, for us, that's going to produce the best bike possible, um, best constructed bike. And to us, that, that just goes a long way of the value in a bike like a Moots that, yeah, the initial investment is, it's a big pill to swallow, no doubt about it. Um, but it's going to be with the rider uh, for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And what we also really like about titanium is we can adapt the ride quality of the frame for the given rider and the given use. We can stiffen it up. 
we can lighten it up mm -hmm. and we can manipulate that ride quality and and that's something about kind of the Moots brand in general is by the time folks get to a Moots bike they've they've been through a number of fairly high-end bikes by that point usually and they get on their Moots and they ride and they come back and and more times than not it's it's the feeling of I'm not sure what it is but I've never ridden a bike that rides like this. And that, that ride quality to us is absolutely first and foremost. Um, if you came back and said, man, this ride's horrible, that would be a big failure, obviously. And so, yeah, we really uh, pay close attention to, to that as well. Yeah. Well, and it seems like you, can, you really can appreciate that ride quality um, on a hardtail. And so most of the bikes that Moots produces are hardtails or softtails, but still something where you're going to, you're going to be able to appreciate that titanium and that tubing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the new Womble and then the, the Mountaineer that we have in the line right now, you know, the, the Womble uh, is built, built to have fun. It's a mountain bike, right? And it's uh, for us. It was a not a huge step, but it was definitely a step towards a much more modern geometry without going overboard. Mm -hmm. You know, we definitely got a little more slack in the head angle and a little more steep in the seat angle, and addressing longer travel forks and uh, nice short rear ends. You know, chainstays of, of the bike. So um, it really, uh, gosh. You know, when you're when you're riding mountain bikes, durability. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was just thinking about, too, is like, I don't know that I've ever seen a study that shows sort of the lifespan of a bike based on material, right? Like how long before somebody, you know, tosses their aluminum bike in the trash or, you know, donates it or whatever. It's, it's not being used anymore versus a titanium. And I'm sure... I'm sure that it's it's much longer with a titanium bike. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, each each one of our bikes comes out of here with a, a lifetime warranty to the original owner, and many times we'll see uh, that very bike get passed on to a second generation rider in that given family. Um, I've had fathers buy a bike, ride it for ten years, and then pass it to their son or their daughter. Yeah. And that's, that's really cool. So, yeah, it's, it, it is definitely a, a great material. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting approach, too. You're just saying how with the Womble, uh, you know, the geometry is, is modern and it's updated and it's, you know, more progressive than other bikes in the line have been to this point. But you're also not, like, chasing kind of the bleeding edge because we all know that the bleeding edge, you know, people are going to push things and see how far they can go. And then that's probably going to pull back a little bit. It's like, you're trying to predict sort of where things are going to land because this bike is going to be around forever. This isn't like you're going to ride this bike a couple years and then, you know, geometry is going to be different and you're going to want a new one. This is one that you hope is going to stick around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of like, you know, just looking at our our customers that have bought bikes from us for years. You, if you swing too far to the, you know, really radically slack head angles, it, it, it alienates a lot of people. And 
honestly, it doesn't make for that great of a all day bike. Mm. And, um, you know, it's like a North shore, you know, where you're getting like 66 degrees, 65 degree head angles. Mm -hmm. And that, that really starts to get away from who we are and, and who, who really is riding our bikes. And that's when we started the Womble project over, uh, gosh, it's been a year and a half at least. That was the goal. Like, let's let's take it to where we're comfortable, and where we address the modern trends without going to that over that line of this is a very very uh, kind of one use bike that you know it really likes going downhill, and that's about it. <laughs> Not getting your money's worth with that for sure. Yeah, exactly. It can only go one direction. Yeah, so that was carefully thought about and uh, planned out in the design of that bike. And uh, I think we've, you know, uh, when we launched that bike in April of 2020, you know, we were in the midst of COVID and all the all the early days of COVID time. And we had no idea um, how it was going to go. And it, our customers have responded and absolutely just love the bike, though. So, it's, it's really good, really good to see. Yeah. Well, sticking with the Womble, um, I wanted to ask you too about, you kind of mentioned ride feel and that's a big part of the moods experience and, you know, well, titanium in general is, it's a big part of that. Um, and with the Womble, you're using a new double butted construction, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that kind of influences ride feel and, and how that all works together? Yeah, so when the when the Womble project started, we knew that we were going to build around a 140 millimeter fork. And the interesting thing is you extend the fork length, you start extending the leverage on the front end of the bike. So we knew we knew we had to build it extremely strong to take that kind of punishment. And so the uh the tube set that's in the Womble is specially sourced it is it is coming out of taiwan for us and it is internally butted large diameter so when we're we're looking at tube to tube construction like a moots I mean, we call that tube to tube as far as stiffness and strength goes the bigger you can make the footprint from one tube to the next the better and that benefit comes out in strength and stiffness so we really went big it's it's the biggest diameter outside diameter tube we've ever used in any of our bikes and that kind of also speaks to the evolution of tubing supply in some ways where some some of these outfits as far as the mills are addressing the push for bigger diameter material so we really uh, wanted to be on the safe side as far as strength uh, in that bike so, you know, uh, we went big and you'll never really read anywhere in Moots marketing materials that we start out by saying, this bike is light. That's, that's, that's about third on the list for us. We, as far as concerns, honestly, first and foremost is durability. The second comes in ride quality. And that, that lightness and trying to play the gram game is just not something that we really worry about too much. Mm -hmm. 
it weighs what it is. You know, a fully built size XL in the Womble, you know, tips the scales at about 26 pounds. So not bad for a 140 millimeter fork. And, and we find that, yeah, we're not, we're not too concerned about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I imagine farther down that list after number three, maybe well after is aesthetics. And I'm just imagining like, you know, people know moots for titanium and for these like thin, you know, really sleek looking bikes. Does that, was that a concern at all to, to go with this larger tubing? Does that change kind of the aesthetic and what people are expecting from a moots? Mm. Not too much in the front end of the bike. The The Womble is our very first bike, mountain bike, that we uh, use a fastback seat stay kit on. So Moots is really well known for the YBB, which is basically a mono stay uh, seat stay kit. The Womble, due to using the shorter chain stays and tucking that rear wheel up under the rider a bit, we decided... Uh, on fastback seat stays and that that lends itself in a little bit of uh yeah people were like whoa it's got fastback seat stays that's cool and it it adds more than just the aesthetics for us it definitely adds a little bit of different ride quality to the bike it's a little less harsh uh in the rear end with the fastback seat stays um and it allows us to build very short uh, seat stays when we get down to the size small uh, in that bike where if you're using a mono stay you run out of room at the top of the tire to get that mono stay between the top of tire and seat tube so the fastback was definitely something we wanted to do in that bike and uh, you know it, it came out really nice we believe yeah yeah cool well, you mentioned that this is the 40th anniversary of Moots. And so I want to talk about a couple of technologies um, or products that were kind of debuted along the way from the brand. The first, uh, we talked about YBB Softtails. Um, but another is that Moots appears to have embraced bikepacking really early on uh, with the release of something called the Tailgater Seat Bag back in the year 2000. So today, you know, we're all very familiar with bikepacking, but back then, like, how was bikepacking different from bicycle touring, which had been around a long time? Was, was what made the tailgater made for a different crowd? Yeah, you know, um, Moots has a, a long history of, of building bikes that would take, you know, racks and panniers and, and that sort of touring, mm-hmm. you know, in the steel years and on up through the, the tie years. And then... In 2000, when the tailgater came to be, it was basically, yeah, the, we, the, the folks here at Moots wanted to be able to put a couple more items on their bike. And there really wasn't a system. There were seat bags that strapped to the, the rails of the saddle and, and things like that and hydration packs and things, you know. But the tailgater really kind of, you know, it maxed out at about five pounds carrying capacity and the hoop was made out of uh, titanium right here in the facility, and, and the bags were sewn locally. And it was that first kind of peak for us at kind of 
credit card touring, so to speak, where you might have a pair of sandals, a change of shorts in the bag, and, and you know, whatever, whatever you might have. And that was kind of that, like, peek into, you know, independence on a bike with less than panniers and bags. And uh, the tailgater was wildly popular, you know, folks were starting to string together you know, sections of trail and, you know, they would get to the next town. They weren't necessarily carrying camping equipment at that time, but just enough to make for like a big epic day. And uh, so, yeah, that was that was quite an innovation uh, by Moots. Um, and then, you know, bike packing bags started appearing and, you know, we we've embraced that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of those things that let you, like you said, get away from panniers, which aren't exactly single track friendly. And I'm sure people started, you know, going for a little bit longer ride, a little bit longer, and then thinking, hey, you know, we could spend days out here on single track. And and that was, you know, seemed like that was sort of one of the things that sparked that idea. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's, you know, with a small company like Moots, the, the opportunity to innovate is it's kind of in our DNA where, you know, everybody that works here is somewhat of a, a in-depth cyclist, you know, from super commuter to God, they've toured around the world. They've, you know, seen a lot. And so a lot of those ideas do get uh, baked out into the product for sure. Yeah. Well, around that time, actually in 1999, uh, Moots had a 29er. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, what, 22 years ago, 29er. <laughs> uh, but then by 2010, uh, the brand had a 96er in the lineup, and that was a bike called the Gristle. So what did you think of the bike at that time? You were at Moots then. What was kind of, was, was it, yeah, what did people think about it? What was the reason for bringing that into existence? Well, yeah, at that time, we'd been building um, 29ers for quite a while and we had seen some early uh, prototype stuff from Trek and and uh, actually a good friend of ours Travis Brown and that kind of spurred us you know looking at the combination of 29 front wheel 26 rear wheel with the idea that the 29 front wheel rolls over things really nice and the 26 inch wheel spins up to speed uh, really nice as well. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, we did make, we made a hardtail, we made a YBB, and only a handful of those were really ever out there in the public. Mm -hmm. And then we made the dual suspension bike, which the very first one was three inch travel in the rear, and then it moved to a four inch. And I rode and owned the, the very first prototype that we built out of the dual suspension. Wow. Um, and how we came on the name is a whole other story in itself, but incredible riding bike. And it does, it did exactly what it was meant to do. Accelerate quickly, roll over things, you know, with the 29 wheel out front. And, uh, I mean, I, I sat in uh, Boulder, Colorado in a friend's house and had, late night conversations with Travis Brown before cross races down there talking about the benefits of this and where it could go. And if, 
if people could just embrace it. <laughs> and not soon after that, I was actually racing that bike in Winter Park, Colorado, and flatted the rear tire mm -hmm. and had mistakenly only taken a 29-inch tube with me on the race <laughs> yeah. and ended up folding the thing over in the rear tire to get to the finish line. Um, but really cool technology and combination of technology. And, and you know, since then, I've kind of looked at bikes and thought, man, with 27.5 out there, this could be really cool. I think it's, uh, you know, for the majority of bike riders out there, it's a, just a little too far of a stretch to be like, what? My bike's got different wheels and it kind of seems like a motocross setup because that's, that's kind of where that technology or, or combination of wheel sizes came from. And uh, it does have a lot of validity to it. Um, the performance is, is there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, why do you think that it didn't catch on? I mean, now it seems to be another one of the hot things. I mean, there's a lot of hot things right now, but <laughs> mixed wheels seems to be up there in, in some riders' minds. But it, like you said, it's not mainstream. You know, does it come down to kind of the one of the things that you experienced, you know, having to carry different size tubes and, you know, wheels and worrying about that stuff? Or is it is it something more fundamental? Is it like just it doesn't look right to people or, or what do you think it is? I think it's, it's kind of the combination of those things, you know, aesthetically. Um, I think we're in a, a spot now aesthetically with bikes that the customer kind of expects to see a certain number of things and mixed wheels isn't, isn't in the train of thought, honestly. And when they see that, I think it's, that looks really weird. And I think you have to be somewhat of a, you know, ultra geek on bikes to really understand it and, and really decide that that's going to be your main, you know, mode of, of mountain biking. Mm. So I, I, I think it's, it's kind of an uphill battle for some of that stuff. I do think, you know, at that time, wheels were, you know, relatively heavier than they are now in both sizes, 29 and 26. Mm -hmm. So I think that was kind of the appeal, that quick spin up to RPM of the rear wheel. And you're basically pushing the 29 along. So mm -hmm. that to me, um, I think it's just a little too much for people to, to accept. <laughs> <laughs> even though it might be the, a better way to go. Um, Interesting. Well, uh, you've mentioned that over the years, Moots has produced uh, different full suspension mountain bike designs, but I don't see one currently in the line. Is that because the brand doesn't see a lot of demand from customers or are there sort of different challenges associated with building a full suspension bike um, and particularly longer travel bikes from Titanium? Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, we've had so many over the years, um, and it's, it's interesting. Um, it, it is a very tough material to build dual suspension bikes out of, plain and simple. It, it uh, requires, like we said, a lot of energy, a lot of labor. And by the time we can bring a dual suspension titanium bike frame to market, it's not necessarily outdated, but it's, it's going to cost so much money yeah. to justify it. And they have 
you know, these days, some of the, the, the dual suspension designs, the shelf life on them is very brief, hmm. and it's on to the next technology. And Moots, you know, there's some dual suspensions we've had great success with. The, the last one we did was called the MXZ, and it was, you know, 29-inch dual suspension bike. Mm -hmm. But the frame alone is, you know, it's, in today's money, it would be seven, $8,000 to do that. Wow. Is that because it's labor intensive in terms of like all the hardware and the pivot locations and that sort of thing? Very much so. Yes. To, you know, you're machining pivot points out of titanium, you're machining um, swing arms, you know, that kind of thing. It definitely presents, you know, uh, some barriers for us. And it's, you know, after we build a dual suspension bike, you know, our last one, case in point, the MXZ, you know, we look at it and go, man, it's a great riding bike. It really is. However, was it worth it? You know, did, did we actually get more people into moots by doing this? Um, and sometimes we stand around, you know, a couple years afterwards and look at each other and go, hey, let's, let's promise not to do that again. Um, and just because of the intense, uh, you know, production of that bike um, internally, it, it upsets everything else that we have going. Um, and so we've, you know, we'll see what the future holds. I'm not saying we would never do it again, um, but it would have to be a very strong argument and some awesome technology to, to do another one. Yeah. Well, that begs an interesting question in my mind. I mean, if money were no object, would there be like distinct advantages to building a bike, out, a full suspension bike out of titanium versus carbon fiber? Or, you know, we even see in the UK, there's a number of brands that are building steel full suspension bikes. Not a lot, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, if money were no object, would, would there be a, a case for a titanium full suspension being sort of superior to some of those other materials? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, again, the, the durability category comes up where you're, you know, you're smashing down the mountain on a 140 millimeter travel bike. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we live in a resort town here with lift access to an amazing bike park. And and you see the carnage at the bottom of the hill at the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and you kind of wonder, like, wow, is there something to this? But again, I think um, the dual suspension realm is, it's, it is kind of a, a bike that you buy to use for, you know, several, you know, a few seasons, and then you're on to the next. And so that, to us, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, we think our energy is better used elsewhere. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about gravel riding. Does the recent popularity of gravel riding surprise you? It seems like this is something that Moots has been kind of excelling at um, for a while now and saying this is this is fun. People should do this. We have great bikes for it. Is it are you surprised now that, that this market is finally finally here and is catching up? In some ways, I'm I'm blown away how big it's it's gone. Mm. Yeah. In other ways, we kind of are like, well, yeah, you know, we've we've been telling you this, and you know, and and it starts, you know, with 
uh, folks out riding road bikes and trying to stuff a big tire into it and, and cover different loops and things like that. And then it kind of goes back to our development of uh, cyclocross bikes. And, uh, you know, that's a very short season and a very specific discipline. So what do you do with that bike the other nine months of the year? Well, ride it on dirt roads and eventually a little bit of single track and, and, and double track. And so I, we've really gotten to be known uh, as a great gravel company. We've got some great bikes in the lineup and, and designs and, and that sort of thing. But it's, you know, it's so, I guess, heartwarming to see so many different people getting on to a drop bar bike and, you know, this is how they should have been made all along, right? Where it's like higher volume tires, more confidence inspiring, less skittish, tiny little skinny tires of like, man, I'm, you know, nobody likes to go out and rub elbows with traffic. So I'm going to go down this dirt road on this bike with this bigger tire. And it's, it is actually, it's really great to see because I think we have an opportunity as an industry to bring more people in and that Mm -hmm. whether they're brand new to cycling or road as a kid or a college student or whatever, um, we have an opportunity to, to bring those people in, really expose them to something fun that's a lot less dangerous than riding straight up road with cars and, and things like that. So I think, you know, we feel like we're in a, in a spot to uh, be somewhat of a, you know, catalyst to make that happen. Um, and, and when people are, you know, getting an entry-level bike to the mid-level bike and Someday they'll they'll get to the you know the high end bike and you know that's where we fit in mm-hmm. as that dream someday dream bike for for folks, but no it, it's it's really great to see um, and where the technology is gone with you know tubeless and nice riding tires with good casings and then the whole drivetrain componentry end of things is just it's a mind blowing. I started out riding BMX bikes in the early 80s and racing BMX bikes. Had you told me we would have electronic wireless shifting, <laughs> there's no way I would have believed that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> so, no, it, it is great. Um, and I think uh, we have a lot of uh, credibility in that area. Um, you know, our, our terrain around our facility really lends itself to getting out and riding dirt roads and discovering new places and, and getting people excited to ride again. Yeah. Yeah. And gravel riding just, it seems like kind of the ideal use case for not just titanium, but sort of the whole ride feel, um, that Moots is able to deliver. Um, because yeah, you are, you are riding, uh, connected to the, to the ground and it's, you know, it can be bumpy. <laughs> it can be uncomfortable if you're on, like you said, like a road bike, uh, where you don't have proper tires. And, you know, a lot of those are, de- those bikes are designed to be very efficient and stiff and, and that sort of thing. Whereas what Moots is able to deliver is, is a much more comfortable ride feel. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, you can really feel that come out in a gravel bike, you know, which is very close to, 
Yeah, if you're out on a road bike, you can get a, even a more direct feel of it. Um, but yeah, with the gravel, just being able to have that sublime kind of, uh, you know, titanium silky ride is, it, it is amazing. And, you know, people are out there really pushing the boundaries of gravel. And so that, that durability really starts to be something to think about of like, wow, man, I'm kind of in the backcountry on this Forest Service gravel road miles from anywhere. I definitely want to be able to get back. But yeah, it, it definitely shines through, I, I think, a lot uh, in the gravel bikes, how we can tune that. Well, as a, a company and a brand that's building bikes domestically, how has Moots been dealing with supply chain disruptions due to COVID? You mentioned that some or a lot of your titanium tubing comes from a U.S. manufacturer. Um, so are you seeing those disruptions that other brands are seeing or do they just kind of take a different, a different look to them? Yeah, uh, it's definitely a little bit, eh, with the tubing, not so much. Um, we, you know, we're, we're planning and, and forecasting our business, you know, a couple years in advance um, on, on some of our materials. So we are very conscious about what we have in the building. Um, if we run out of tubing, we can't make bikes. So <laughs> back in the days where... Uh, these bigger dreamliners uh, were getting built by the aerospace industry. Mm -hmm. that, were, that was interesting times because the demand on tubing was so high. And honestly, the titanium tubing bike market is such a small percentage of what they make. What do they use it for? I'm curious about that now in aerospace. Obviously, airplanes are, I would think, mostly aluminum. But what, what is the titanium used for, if you know? Um, you know... For a lot of it, it they use uh, titanium tubes for for hydraulic lines. Okay. Huh. Um, because the the bursting strength is incredibly high, hmm. and you don't want your hydraulics to fail. Right. Corrosion resistance. So not only are they using tubing in planes, but they're using cast titanium fittings for some parts of the structure. Hmm. Okay. But when those big Dreamliner contracts were getting fulfilled, we saw some of our lead times go to two and a half years. Whoa. And the prices went up 60%, like crazy kind of stuff. During COVID, it's been interesting. We were, we're, we were well supplied before COVID hit. Um, we try to have you know, about a year's worth of tubing in the building at any given time. And our forecast, you know, our POs that we had placed, the purchase orders, we were lined up and, and in, a, in a good spot. But what's happened to the aerospace industry during COVID and the lack of travel is there's not a big demand on that side of them. So the, the tubing has been uh, readily available for us. We're feeling pretty good about that situation. The, the tough part about the supply chain and all of our peers and, and friends out there in the industry can relate to this all, all the way to the bike shops is components. Um, so derailers, uh, shifters, crank sets um, from any given brand, that stuff is that stuff got really tight and, and continues to be a bit tight. Mm -hmm. But we have made big strides um, internally here. We have uh, a single person that is our purchaser. And he's on that basically on a daily and sometimes hourly 
cadence of being in touch with our uh, component suppliers to make sure as our bikes finish, we've got group sets to go with them. Mm. And uh, our dealers have found that to be uh, extremely advantageous to them because they have a hard time getting parts as well. So we warehouse quite a bit of that stuff and we have a, a honestly a, a pretty big investment going into that. So we try to secure that. Um, you know, here at the facility, disruptions during COVID, um, you know, uh, as we went into lockdown um, late March, uh, some of us started working from home that could do so, um, the office folks. Uh, but our production has stayed online pretty much throughout this. We have a, a facility that I wouldn't say it's gigantic, um, but there's enough space in it where we can maintain, you know, six to 10 feet between people. Okay. Um, so our production staff is, you know, when you enter the building right now, we are masked, masked up um, throughout the building. Um, we clean all the surfaces each evening. And unfortunately, the, the down, real big downside to that kind of stuff is we've had to close our facility to outside tours. Mm. Typically, we have a open door policy, and on uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you can come to Moots at 10 a.m. and take a factory tour and see how we build our bikes. Wow. Obviously, we, we had, to, had to stop that mm-hmm. um, and just limit the folks in the building to the people that are here uh, building bikes and, and working in the offices, but it's it's a big concern for sure. It's uh, it's not a, a good situation out there, and, and we're doing our best to keep our crew safe. Yeah. Well, based on all that, is it easier right now uh, to get a Moots frame, say, than to, to buy a complete bike, or, or are they still still pretty easy to get a complete bike from you guys? Um, very easy to get a complete bike. Like I said, we're we're really forecasting and investing in inventory of parts so um, when the frame ships out of here to our dealer it it goes you know frame in one box build kit in the other so we're we're doing okay in that way Um, with the demand of uh, outdoor products in general and this is industry you know bicycle industry to uh, backcountry ski gear any of that kind of stuff that is allowing people to get out and exercise away from uh, a gym or away from group settings, right? Not, I'm not a gym person, um, but uh, we've seen incredible demand um, in those products. And uh, Moots is right there, our, our demand for uh, our bike frames right now. You know, people, people want to get out and, and be uh, distanced, but also kind of check out and get away from the day-to-day um, that we're hearing on the news, you know, every hour. So it's, uh, yeah, we encourage it for sure. We, we try to get out for some lunch rides and, uh, obviously in our little bubble, (laughs) so to speak. And, uh, yeah, doing it, doing our best to, to keep it safe. Yeah. Well, speaking of a bubble, I'm curious to know if Moots as a brand and as a company could exist Anywhere but Steamboat Springs. Like, how does how does that location uh, influence sort of the product and, and the design? You know, it's I'm not sure Moots could. Um, I'm partial. I've I've lived here for 
25 plus years and absolutely love the small town uh, life and, and the way that Steamboat is, is not your typical resort town, I guess, is the way to put it. Um, we do have a resort and there's a lot of our economy that kind of pivots around that. But within the town of Steamboat, there's a lot of industry here. There's, uh, you know, Smart Wolves located here, Honey Stinger, Big Agnes, a lot of outdoor companies uh, find their home here. And for us, it's always been that way um, since Moots was founded in 1981. And it just lends itself, you know, we're literally out the front door here and, you know, five minutes on the bike path and we're on single track. And we, you know, we get out, we ride a lot. And that really has an impact on the products that we make, the designs that we, you know, use. So I don't know, I think and our customers out there, right? So you've got like, oh, Colorado, it's so cool. And then, oh, there's Steamboat. And it, it is. There's there's places all over the place that are really cool and fun to go ride and live. You know, and it has its drawbacks, you know. Um, it's small. We get a lot of snow. If you don't like snow, it, it's tough. But uh, it's really kind of baked into our DNA. You know, we're out riding, testing, and redesigning bikes kind of on a weekly basis and so it, it, it it's a testing ground right out our door yeah i would i would hate to see uh i don't think moods could be picked up and plopped someplace else um <laughs> i think uh it's a large part of our identity yeah yeah makes sense i mean because like you said i mean there is just all the like the ability to get out and ride and to, to test products and to really understand how they're being used. And then it seems like attracting the people that work for a brand like Moots, uh, they're going to be attracted to a spot like Steamboat. And, and again, yeah, it all kind of is reflected then back in the product and, and gives it that kind of vibe that people are looking for. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and we get out, I mean, we don't, yeah, obviously these are different times. There's no travel going on. There's no events, but on a normal year, we, we definitely get out. We, we have a sprinter van and demo bikes and we go visit dealers and participate in events with, um, you know, customers of ours that, that are on their bikes. And we go out and experience these other places to ride. And, um, it's, you always come back here. And for those that, haven't traveled outside of the building or steamboat for a while you come back with this man i was on the east coast and maryland and you should see this crazy rough stuff they ride up there <laughs> it is insane and you know you just come back with this appreciation of those other places um that that's that's where somebody goes out their door and rides every day and we bring that back here and we share those stories and we think about that when we design a new bike or make a, a tweak to an existing design of like, man, we're not just here in Steamboat. These bikes are, they're getting ridden all over the world. And we have to keep that in mind. So yeah, we do, we do like to get out there and see that. Yeah. Very cool. So what does Moots have in store for the next decade? What are we going to be talking about? You think when Moots celebrates its 50th anniversary? I don't know. <laughs> um, you can't predict the future. I th no. I I, uh, I think 
you're going to see moots continue on this path of um, really meaningful innovations and evolution of our product as as the world and, and riders change. I think moots is not one for radical, you know, 90 degree turns all of a sudden of like, whew, we came out with this and really, you know, we, we keep it pretty down to earth. Innovation is always on the top of our minds and that innovation within the material that we're working with. And so we, uh, you know, we're not that company that changes for sake of changing. So I think in 10 years from now, I think a lot of the same DNA that Moots started with in 1981 will still be with the company. I think there's, mm-hmm. you know, as we pass stories down from one generation of Moots employee to the next, I think that is kind of the the legacy of Moots of, you know, never kind of forgetting, you know, where we started, um, where we came from, and what it's all about. And it's, you know, it's bikes. It should be fun. Uh, and I think too. Moot's approach to, you know, the business side of things where we're very um, aware that, gosh, in order to keep doing this, it's a passion, you know, for many of us, we've got to be smart about our business. And uh, so we can be there at, at year number 50. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a unique approach, you know. I mean, the industry is full of all kinds of brands and yeah, Moots definitely has its place among those as as being different, you know, not being the same as as everyone else, and so that's cool to see. Yeah, I think it is. It's something about the company, humble beginnings, and down to earth people. Where you could call here on any given day, you get a human on the phone, and let's talk bikes. Yeah, very cool. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, I learned a ton about moots and titanium and uh, really appreciate it. Absolutely, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Well, you can learn more about the brand at moots.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Next week.